What's up, everybody? How are you doing? Good. Okay. Oh, hey, my name is Beth, and I know I've been up here hosting some, but I really haven't gotten the chance to meet a lot of you. So I figured before I dived in, I would just tell you a little bit about myself. Um, So probably the most exciting thing in my life right now that's been the most exciting thing for a while is that I just got engaged in July. Yes, thank you. So this is a picture of my fiance, David, proposing, which we are getting married in November. He's incredible. I think we have another picture of us. Um, I just wanted to, yeah, I know all the alls. I just wanted you to see how hot he is because I can't believe I get to marry him. So I am so pumped. It, I cannot wait to get married. He is amazing. He's in the room. He's also a small group leader here because he's just really incredible like that. And he proposed in my hometown of Charlotte, North Carolina. That is where I grew up. Oh, a few people from North Carolina or Charlotte. Amazing. I love it. So my parents don't live in Charlotte anymore. They moved from Charlotte to Norman, Oklahoma, which I think is a major downgrade, but they seem to like it. They're fine with it. I don't understand it, but whatever. And I have an older brother who lives in Brooklyn, New York. And yes, are you from Brooklyn? Um, Amazing, I love it. And so my brother is an artist, and he is a really good artist. And I discovered pretty early on in life that I did not get that gene in our family, the like drawing, painting, fine arts, artistic thing. I didn't get it. And so I decided that sports was going to be my thing. Uh And so, um, yeah, the tour is probably not going where you think it's going, because as... When I was younger, I played basketball, and so I was like, all right, basketball is going to be my thing. I played basketball through middle school. I got to high school, and I was like, this is it. Like, I have found my thing. And then tryouts came around, and y'all, I'm not kidding. Freshman year, I didn't even make first cuts. Like, it was, and I thought I was good up to that point. I was like, oh, I've got this. Didn't even make first cuts. It was incredibly embarrassing. So freshman year came and went, and then sophomore year, I learned about cross-country. Any cross-country runners in the room? Hey, y'all are crazy. You're crazy. So I heard about cross-country, and if you're not familiar with cross-country, all it is, it's running. It's just literally, you just run. That's it. That's the whole point of the sport. And I decided to run cross-country simply because it was the only sport that you didn't have to try out for. And so I was like, I've got this. This is going to be my thing. So I joined the cross-country team. We had a couple months of practice. Our first race came. Races are 3.1 miles long, which I was like, easy, got it. Our first race, we're racing against every school in the county. So I'm talking, I don't know, 100, 150 girls. The race starts. At the start of the race, I'm feeling good. I'm like, I've got it. Like, I'm going to be a runner. I have my thing. This is amazing. Until I hit about a mile in. And at a mile in, I get a really bad cramp. And at that point, it's when I thought, hmm, I don't think I have consistently run 3.1 miles ever in my life. And we'd done a lot of running and practice, but it was mostly just social hour for me. Like, I never fully did the drills. I never, like, fully ran what I was supposed to. I didn't really think that was a big deal until up until this moment when I'm, like, dying from this cramp. But then I remember that our coach told us, hey, if you get a cramp, run into it. And so I was like, I got it. So I'm now, I'm, like, kind of, like, limp running my way through this race. 
And then I start looking around and I notice there is nobody else around me. And I don't know what happened to them or where they went, but they are not near me. And you should also know that I'm incredibly directionally challenged. And in cross-country races, it's just marked by like cones or maybe some sort of like caution tape or like spray paint on the ground. Like it's not like super obvious where you should go. So at this point, I'm now like running with this like limp cramp and I'm like, where am I going? Like I don't even know, am I going the right way? Like, I mean, it's a disaster. And then, I don't know, maybe a mile, I've maybe gotten like 0.2 more miles, maybe another half mile, I'm not really sure. But at that point, I'm starting to realize I can't breathe. And like, I'm in the like, you know, the like, <gasps> like to the point where I thought like somebody was behind me about to pass me because I was like, who is breathing so loud? And I realized it's me. And so then at that point, I was like, all right, we're just gonna take a little break. We're just gonna take a little break. We're gonna walk it out for a minute. So I walk it out for a minute and I'm telling you, if you want to feel like an Olympic athlete, just ask me to go on a run with you. Like, I will make you feel like the fastest person in the world. So after my little break, I start running again. I run most of the rest of the way. But I turn the final corner and I see the finish line and y'all, I'm like, give it everything you've got. And I, in my mind, I'm Usain Bolt. I'm like, yeah, which if I could see a video, it's probably just like, here I come. Like, it was probably, horrible. But as I'm getting close to the finish line, I notice something really strange, that there is nobody else there except for my parents, which I was like, I don't know. I didn't really think much of it. I book it to the end. I cross the finish line. I'm like dramatic laying on the ground. My parents come over and I was like, dad, how did I do? Because I'm like, if I'm this tired, I did well. Like, I know it. And my dad looks at me and in all serious goes, well, the good news is, you finished. <laughs> the bad news is, you came in last. And I was like, what? And y'all, not just last, so far last, everyone else had left. Like, it was just my parents there, which one, mortifying to concerning that nobody thought to come look for me. Like, at what point were you gonna be like, we should maybe go see if Beth's alive? Like, bad. Which I will note that later on I was diagnosed with exercise-induced asthma, which was a little bit of a relief. Um, the bad news with that is that my races honestly never improved. We just celebrated if I ran the whole time, which was rare. But after that, I was like, well, running, not my thing. So I just gave up on cross-country. In fact, I gave up on sports altogether, decided that was not going to be my thing. But bigger than that, I actually ended up giving up on trying anything new for a really long time. Because I didn't want to find out that there was one more thing that I wasn't good at. I didn't want to fail at one more thing. And what I didn't know then that I know now was that honestly I was just searching for the thing that would give me some dignity which I know that sounds really intense, but it's true. I was looking for the thing that would give me some honor. I was looking for the thing that would give me some respect, something that I had that would add some value to the world. And the more that I've researched the idea of dignity, really how we view our own and how we view other people's is just simply the answer to the question, what am I worth? which is exactly what I was trying to answer in high school, that maybe if I could add some beautiful art to the world, then I was worthy. 
And if not, then maybe I could find some worth from being a top athlete. And if I couldn't find it there, then what was the next thing that I could turn to to find some worth? And if I couldn't find it, then was I really worthy of any sort of dignity at all? And my guess is that you also desire dignity, you desire honor, you desire respect. And so whether or not you know it, you've probably also asked yourself the question, what am I worth? And what I know for myself is that this didn't just end for me in high school, it's carried over into my adult life. It just looks a lot different now. But it's why we care so much about our grades and our major and our future career. It's why we care so much about our relationship status. It's why it hurts so bad when a parent just seems to be able to just walk out of your life. It's why we care about the stuff we have and creating the perfect image. And it's why we want a lot of our past to stay in the past and our secrets to stay a secret. Because if we can eventually land the right job and if we can have the right relationship and if we can create a perfect image, then maybe we are worthy of some dignity. But then what happens if we don't land the job, if the relationship fails, if our past and our secrets begin to seep out, then are we no longer worthy of this honor, of this respect, of this dignity that we hope for? So we've been in this series called Scandalous, where we've been looking at the life of Jesus. And tonight, I want us to look at a scandalous conversation that Jesus has for someone and in this conversation, Jesus answers for them what they're worth, but I think what we're going to discover is that he actually answers the question for all of us as well. And so this story, this conversation we're going to look at, it takes place in the ninth century. And now I know that you've been in class and in school for a while, but I want to do just a little bit of a history lesson to give you some context. So in this story, we have the Samaritans and we have the Jews. And the Samaritans and the Jews do not get along at all. In fact, the Samaritans are just considered inferior to the Jews. We have Jesus and his disciples, who are Jewish, and they are traveling from Judea back to Galilee. And now typically, any Jew that's traveling from Judea to Galilee, they're going to take the long route around the coast in order to avoid Samaria, because that's how much they don't like the Samaritans. But Jesus and his disciples decide to travel right through Samaria because, as we know, Jesus likes some scandal. And so they come to the town of Sakar, and that's where we pick up in the story. So it says this. It says, Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon when a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Now, there's a reason that John would note that it was noon. Because at the time, it would have been really unusual for a woman to come draw water at noon because that would have been the heat of the day. Typically, they would have come early in the morning or late at night when it was cool. So the fact that she's coming in the middle of the day meant that she is coming to avoid people. She doesn't want to interact with anyone. And it continues. So then Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? And the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink? And so we already know that the Samaritans are considered inferior to the Jew in every way, socially, racially, religiously, intellectually, they're inferior. And so already the fact that a Jew would be interacting with a Samaritan, that would have already been pretty scandalous. 
But that's not all that's taking place because I actually left out part of what the Samaritan said. This is the full statement. She said, the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. And so also in this time, women would have been considered intellectually, socially, religiously inferior to all men. In fact, this would have been the first century view of women. I'm going to go ahead and throw them up there. They were not allowed to speak in public at all. Men were not allowed to speak to them in public, including their wife. Keep going. Women must have been veiled when they walked out into public, so you would not have been able to show your face. Women would have been considered property. So women were considered property of their family until they were married, and then they would have been considered property of their husband. They were given little to no freedom when it came to working, and women received no education. So lowest of the low, everything that's happening in this room right now would not have existed in the first century. In fact, the cultural view of women was so low that there was a Jewish prayer of thanksgiving that Jewish men would pray, and this was part of that prayer. said this, Praise be to God that he has not created me a woman. Yeah. All the ladies are like, I'm sorry, what? (laughs) Yes. Intense. Lowest of the low. So here we have this woman that just simply because of the way that she is born, because she is Samaritan and because she's a woman, within her culture she would have been deemed worthless. And so the fact that Jesus, a Jewish man, is interacting with her, it would have been incredibly scandalous. So then Jesus and this woman start going back and forth about him asking for a drink, and the conversation continues. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And so Jesus is setting up for her, hey, I'm not actually an ordinary guy. Like, I'm not just asking you for a drink of water. I actually have something to offer you. But this woman isn't following. She's confused by the interaction as a whole. And so their conversation continues. And she says, sir, the woman said, if you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep, where can you get this living water? And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water, as in this physical water, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. He continues, indeed, The water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And now if we were to put ourselves in this woman's shoes, she's just on her ordinary trip to the well at noon And she's getting water, and this really strange guy walks up to her and begins to interact with her like no other Jewish man ever would. And I have to think that, one, she either thinks he's crazy, and she's just entertaining him by like, okay, okay, this living water, sure, tell me about this living water. I think you're crazy, but just tell me about it. Or two, she has in her mind, okay, I don't know how this is possible, but maybe he actually has some physical living water that he can give me that will just replenish itself so that I don't have to keep coming back here. But either way, there's no way that this woman would have been able to comprehend or understand what Jesus is offering. 
And us sitting here now from the position that we're in, we can look back at this story and know that essentially what Jesus was saying to her was, hey, hey, I know that you have a hard life. I know that you've come here to be alone. I know that because of the way that you were born that you're considered worthless, but I actually have a life to offer you that's worth living. But this woman would have had no context for that just because she was a Samaritan woman. The concept of a life worth living she would not have been able to comprehend that. And Jesus knew that. And so he brings one more piece into this conversation to drive home the fact for her that he is not an ordinary person. And so Jesus turns to her and he says this. He told her, go, call your husband and come back, which wouldn't have been that weird because her husband being there would have made this whole thing a lot more culturally acceptable. The woman says to him, she says, I have no husband, she replied. And then Jesus responds to her and said, you're right when you say you've had no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands. Get it, girl. (laughs) Some of you are like, I can't even get one day and she got five husbands. How'd she do that? (laughs) But also so savage of Jesus, like just laying it out on the table And now we have no idea why she's had five husbands. Maybe she has been married five separate times and all of her husbands have passed away. And if that's the case, that would have caused her a lot of pain in her life. Or maybe she's been married five times and divorced. And if that's the case, then that would have been culturally unacceptable. And so that would have been a point of shame and embarrassment for her. But no matter what, the fact that she has had five husbands, it would not have been a point of pride. It wouldn't have been something that she would have wanted to talk about. But Jesus isn't done, and here he reveals the final layer, and he says to her, yes, you have had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. I know, Jesus, you're like, oh, don't come talk to me. (laughs) But for this woman... This would have been the reason that she came to the well alone in the middle of the day because to live with someone that you weren't married with, like that would have been so shameful, so embarrassing, something that you would have wanted to hide. And so here we have a Samaritan, which is not okay. We have a Samaritan woman, which is absolutely not okay. We have a Samaritan woman who has had five different husbands, which is 100% not okay. We have a Samaritan woman who has had five husbands and the person she's living with now is not her husband, like completely unacceptable. And so if you would have asked anyone, not just a religious leader, not just a man, you would ask anyone, any woman, any child, if you would have asked them, hey, this, this woman, what is this woman worth? The answer would have been easy. They would have looked at you and said, that woman, nothing. She is worth nothing because of the way that she was born, the circumstances she's found herself in, the decisions that she has made, she is worth nothing. And so here we have this woman that has to be filled with so much loneliness. This woman who has to be filled with so much shame. This woman who is filled with so much embarrassment. This woman who has been told her entire life that she is worth absolutely nothing. But then Jesus, this Jewish man, 
comes and stops and he talks to her in the middle of the day and he asks her for a drink of water from her bucket, which everyone at the time would have known that for a Jew to drink out of a Samaritan's water bucket, it would have made them unclean. Nobody would have done that. But this man did and he sits and he talks to her and he asks her questions and he engages with her in what seems almost cruel. He reveals everything about her past and her present, but what we see as this interaction continues with Jesus and the woman, she doesn't get angry. She doesn't get mad. and She doesn't lash out. And I think it has to be because she must be sitting there thinking, this man who knew everything about my life still chose to sit and talk to me. And they just continue having this conversation and the woman starts talking to Jesus about religion and she can't make sense of what's happening and so she tells Jesus, okay, maybe you like, you must just be a prophet or something like, I don't understand who you are, but I know that at some point a Messiah is coming and when that Messiah comes, I think he's gonna help me make sense of this entire conversation. And then Jesus looks at the woman and he declares to her, he says, hey, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. And at this point in Jesus's life, this is the first time that he so clearly reveals to somebody who he is. And he's had plenty of opportunity to do that before, but he chose chose this moment this conversation with this woman to reveal that he is the Messiah, he is the one that they've been waiting for, he is Jesus, he is going to be who is the savior of the world, and so why this woman? I think it's because this woman, this woman is exactly why Jesus came. He came to mend the broken. He came to heal the sick. He came to make things new. And he came to reestablish the dignity of every single human being. And this woman who had been deemed worthless her entire life because of the way that she was born, because of the decisions that she had made, because of the circumstances, Jesus chooses to sit and talk with her and probably for the first time in her life, somebody treats her with dignity, somebody treats her with honor, somebody treats her with respect, somebody treats her like she has value. And it would have been this interaction with this woman that would have made heads turn more than anyone else, it would have been scandalous. And anybody who heard about it and anybody who saw it, it would have been undeniable to them that Jesus was no ordinary man. And then this woman, after this declaration that Jesus is the Messiah, she drops her water bucket and she runs back into her town and she proclaims to everybody what just happened. And I don't think that she's just compelled by Jesus' declaration that he is the Messiah. I think she's compelled by the normalcy in which he interacted with her. That the Savior of the world would treat her of all people with dignity and honor, and respect, and worth. And for this woman, nothing about her circumstances or her life had changed from the well back to her town, but everything internally changed for her. 
She all of a sudden believed that she had a voice. She all of a sudden believed that she could be used for something powerful. She all of a sudden believed that she had dignity. She all of a sudden believed that she had value and she wanted everybody to know what she had just experienced. But this whole idea of dignity, this whole idea of worth, it didn't exist until Jesus stepped onto the scene because actually the idea of upholding the dignity of each individual, it started with Jesus. It was not culturally the norm. This would have been scandalous for Jesus to come and say, hey, I'm going to reestablish and I'm going to uphold the dignity of every individual that our heavenly Father has already declared worthy, which he made really clear was everyone. This is what Jesus came to do, and at the time it was incredibly scandalous. But he came to sit with every person who felt worthless, every person who felt like they didn't have value to say, hey, that's not what my heavenly father thinks, and I'm gonna make sure that you know it's true. But the challenge to this is that yes, upholding the dignity of each individual started with Jesus, and it continues with us. And now anybody can do this. But if you're a Jesus follower, then you have a responsibility to uphold the values that Jesus established. And Jesus made it really, really clear that he valued the worth of every single person. And so I just wonder what our world would look like if we would be the kinds of people that when we walked around, that we would see every single person the way that Jesus saw them, a person worth upholding their dignity, a person to say, hey, I think you're worthy of stopping for, I think you're worthy of talking to, I think that you are worthy of getting to know, I think that you're important, and I think that you can be used for something powerful. Can you imagine what our world would look like. And I think the more that we began to do that, the more that we would begin to experience and discover the dignity of the people around us, but I think we would also begin to experience a lot more of our own. But I also know there are some of you in the room who are thinking, yeah, that idea sounds cool. Let's uphold the dignity of the people around us. But honestly, you find yourself relating more with the woman at the well. And because of the way that you were born, or because of the decisions that you've made, or because of the circumstances that you're in, you find yourself wondering if you are actually worthy at all. And if that's you, here's what I know to be true. That if you were to ever walk into a coffee shop, which would be our modern day well, and you went there at an odd time of the day to avoid the crowds, and Jesus walked in, here is the conversation that I know that he would have with you. That in spite of how you were born, in spite of your major, in spite of your grades, in spite of your relationship status, in spite of your family situation, in spite of what people have said about you, in spite of what you believe about yourself, he would look at you and he would say, hey, I know you. 
and I know what people have said about you, and I know what you believe about yourself, and I know the decisions that you've made, and I'm staying right here because I want to know you and I want to learn about you and I want to talk to you and I want to stop for you. And then if you were to look at Jesus and you were to say, okay, I get it, but, but Jesus, what do you ultimately think I'm worth? I'm telling you that I believe that you would stop and he would look you directly in the eyes and he would say, you, you, I think that you are worth my entire life. Which in time, <coughs> he would willingly give up for you. And so as we close, Jamie is gonna sing this song over us. And I would love for us to just stay seated. And this song just talks about what our heavenly father thinks about us. And so as you think about your own worth and you think about your dignity and the worth of those around you, just remain seated and just let these words wash over you. And so heavenly father, we thank you for the scandalous life of Jesus. Because God, because it is because of Jesus that we know that no matter what, we are worthy of dignity, that we are worthy of honor, that we are worthy of respect. And God, I pray that we would begin to believe it in ourselves and we would begin to uphold it in the people around us. So God, we love you so much. And we thank you for who you are. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.